Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now. What we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy. And we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts. We've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more. And they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears. Hello, everybody. Are we recording, by the way, Harv? That's always handy. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to come along and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. It's as simple as that, really. Um, We get all sorts of people to to stand up and do tragedy uh, from all of the different parts of the arts. And so we should expect on this stage tonight to see things that are going to make us feel sad uh, because that's what tragedy is about. Um, So this is kind of also, as well as an introduction to the night, it's a content note to prepare yourselves for the kind of content that happens in tragedy. Uh, So there may be some death, there may be some sadness, there may be some complicated things to process but that's okay because we're going to process them together because what I want Stand Up Tragedy to be is a safe space to talk about unsafe things so that's what we're going to do tonight Uh, we're going to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry that's the idea okay so we are a live show we are also a podcast Um, so in the next week's coming after now you will be able to hear the things you heard in this room and you'll be able to tell your friends to listen to them uh, which is always handy you can find that on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out on the internet really so there you go that's that bit of admin or sadmin as I like to call it uh, done so this year we're doing uh, four shows in London they're seasonal uh, so we've already had tragic winter today it's tragic spring And so I guess it's going to be about things, you know, when things start to grow, when things start, it often means that things are also dying. Uh, So I think that that is kind of what these transitional months are like. Like my favourite two two parts of the year, really, my favourite seasons are spring and autumn because it's when everything is happening. Life and death, birth and uh, whatever. Well, life's the opposite of birth, so I've fucked that up royally. So... That's what we're going to do. We're going to explore new things, I guess. Spring, the kind of topics that connect us with the idea of spring. So basically, we've got three acts, uh, three parts, and each part will be a different podcast, um, and they're going to have different themes. So the themes we've got tonight are tragic beginnings, tragic bodies, which is guest curated and hosted by Matilda Gregory. So I've got no idea what's happening in that part of the night. So I'm really excited about that. And tragic sex is how we're going to end, which is a good way to end most nights, I think. Um, (laughs) Welcome back to the third act of Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, This is the the act you've all been waiting for, tragic sex. Uh, Before I go on, I just want to do a little bit of sadmin. 
There, you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Stand Up for Tragedy. You can make friends with the tragedy on Facebook uh, if you like, or you can, or you can just like our page. But we prefer you to make friends with the tragedy. And uh, if any of you got, uh, would like to look at the table on your way out, uh, there is some merch that I'm desperately trying to sell because I, I, I don't have a job, so I'm really, really desperate for money. Uh, so there you go. That's. What's that? Oh yes, the blog, yes. And also, if you'd like to share your tragedy with us, we publish uh, written tragedy on our blog. So go over to our website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk, and you can find out how to submit to our blog there, uh, or speak to Angela, she's the editor of the blog. And read and read the lovely stories. Absolutely, that's of course what plugging's all about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. See the content uh, we have on our website. Right, this is the third act of stand-up tragedy. It's going to be three performers doing some tragic sex. Uh, our first performer. Uh, she's a writer and true storyteller. She's done uh, stories regularly with Spark London. You can find out about Spark London on your on your tables. And she's also uh, performed with the American storytelling show Risk. Put your hands together for Saraya Sidha Singh! So I just wondered if anyone wanted to hear a story about how I almost joined a clitoris cult. Um, so, do you have one of those friends who, like, um, you phone them up and say, hey, can we hang out? And they say, oh, I might have some free time in two months. <laughs> I have one of those friends. And uh, so, you know, I asked her if she wanted to go out. She said, oh, yeah, I've got a slot in about eight weeks. And I said, just let you do the doctor, you know. Um, do you have anything sooner? <laughs> and she said, well, I'm going to this thing next week that you might be interested in coming along to with me. And it's kind of like... Um, it's a sort of a spiritual personal development kind of a group um, and I've heard a lot of really good things about them and it's kind of loosely based on Buddhism but instead of chanting or meditation they have uh, their spiritual practice is clitoral stimulation and <laughs> I said that sounds really uh, interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. And she's, she's kind of like, you know, oh, it's not just any type of clitoral stimulation. It's a really specific stroke, you know, in the top, you know, kind of one o'clock on the clitoris. And, you know, you only, it's, you, you've got to learn it. It's this really kind of specific <laughs> thing. Um, and, you know, I've read a book about it and all that kind of stuff. And uh, she had, I haven't. Um, and, uh, you know, so what they do is they've got this organization. They go around the world teaching people this Thing. And uh, so you can go to this kind of taster night where you sort of, you don't actually <laughs> do much tasting. Um, <laughs> you don't actually uh, see this practice being performed, but you just get to meet some people from the group and they tell you about how, how much it's changed their lives and how, um, you know, and then from there you can potentially go on to do a full day workshop and, you know, actually see a demonstration of the technique and try it out yourself if you'd like to, if you've got a clitoris. Um, and so we were basically going to this uh, taster evening, um, and I agreed to go along with her. And it was actually, we had a really nice night. Um, it was basically just, there was about 40 people in a room, and about 20 of them were from the organization, and about 20 of them were sort of members of the public like us. And it was a whole lot of kind of, you know, getting to know you games, like you might have played at, I don't know, school camp or something like <laughs> that. Um, uh, but... Afterwards, she and I were talking about this evening and we were sort of saying, like, we, we had a really good time, but there was a couple of things about the organisation that made us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, one of them was that... Um, 
they had this way of talking to you where I don't know what it was about that what they were doing, but you kind of came away feeling like um, I'd given out all this personal information and kind of talked about quite sort of personal things when I otherwise wouldn't have done. And there was something about the way they were talking that was making me do that, and I couldn't quite pin it down. The second thing was that, um, so there's about 20 people there from the organization, about 20 people from the public, but the people from the organization were all quite young and attractive, and the people who were from the general public were kind of across the general level of ages and attractiveness that you get in the general population. So you're kind of like... I'm not really sure how this works. So we thought that, because we'd really enjoyed this night, we might go to another one of these nights, but we wouldn't probably go to one of their workshops and kind of, you know, go and see the demonstration or anything like that. At least that was what my plan was. But the next day, um, I got this phone call from a woman from the organization, and somehow during the course of the conversation, I signed up and paid over 100 pounds to go to this full-day workshop (laughs) where I would see this, you know demonstrated technique uh, and, you know, potentially try it out for myself, that kind of thing. But I was actually really, really looking forward to this. And this is probably where it's quite important for me to say why I was particularly keen to meet up with my friend this time. I was having a really, really bad depressive episode um, where I'd um, had a really bad breakup. Um, My boyfriend, we had a really fantastic relationship. Um, We were very compatible in lots of different ways. And um, he'd gone off to Burning Man and then came, um, well, after Burning Man, sent me an email telling me all about this really, really amazing woman he met. And it was about... (laughs) It was about a page and a half long about how awesome she was um, and how he was going to sort of continue a relationship with her, whether I liked that or not, basically. Um, So having read all this stuff about how amazing she was, I kind of, I guess one of the things that was really in my head was that I wasn't and that I wasn't good enough, I guess. And so I was kind of, I suppose, looking for something in my life at the time that was like, that I could become someone other than who I was, really. And so this kind of... um, what I'd heard from these people, I guess, even though I didn't believe their sort of idea that this clitoral stimulation thing that they did together would actually lead to wonderful personal development outcomes. It was actually something that I wanted. So I'd signed up for this full day workshop and I'd been waking up very, very early in the mornings um, and having those anxiety attacks. I don't know if anyone else has ever had those where you feel like you, um, everything that, you know, really, really tiny things are suddenly the most incredibly stressful thing in the world, like, oh my God, I don't have a pension plan or something like that, and suddenly it's become this really, really huge, huge stressful thing. So that was happening to me every morning pretty much at the time. And the day of the full day workshop, I had the worst kind of attack of anxiety in the morning that I ever had. So by the time I actually got there to this kind of strict 9.30 a.m. start, I was really feeling like I didn't really want to be talking to anyone. I was quite happy to sort of sit here and sit there and sort of have people talk to me. But I knew that I was kind of going to go into the space where people were just going to talk at me. So, um, and that's exactly what happened. Actually, the strict strict 9.30 a.m. start turned out to be an hour of these people from the organization and kind of coming up and chatting to you and saying, how are you? And somehow making me divulge personal information in some way that I wasn't really quite sure how they did it. But that was what happened. So that was about an hour and I was feeling really sort of slightly um, annoyed by this happening for a whole hour. And then the day started and I was actually really relieved to sort of hear people talking about how this learning this clitoral stimulation technique will change your life. And that was what they were doing. Um, and so there was a woman and a guy who were running the thing and they're both really young and attractive. And um, they were talking 
interesting about that guy. I said like, oh, you know, as soon as I started doing this, they call it orgasmic meditation. Um, that their lives, you know, had really changed. He'd started a business and she said that people had really noticed I'm so different and everything like that. And um, that really sort of resonated with me. And I was like, I, I want this change in my life. And then, then they started to talk about, because, you know, we're going to do this sort of sexual practice, really, or we're going to kind of um, be watching a sexual practice. And they started talking the language that I was really familiar with from... Um, uh, sex positive world, I guess you would say, where, you know, it's about consent and they were really, really kind of very clear about laying that out. There was the traffic light system was mentioned and that kind of thing. And I was feeling like I really trusted them and that maybe that my sort of suspicion actually about, you know, their agenda and their kind of getting personal information out of me was actually, was unfair. So this, this is when, uh, it's just before lunch and we're going to have this demonstration of this technique and it's like 20 minutes long and they've been describing it all day, oh, the, the day so far. So they've been describing, you know, this is a feather light touch in the top right hand quadrant of the clitoris. You know, we only ever do it for 20 minutes. You know, you can do it with a partner or with someone that, you know, you, you trust that you'd like to do it with as long as one person in the pair has got a clitoris or two people, I suppose. Any, any people that meet that kind of criteria can do this, basically. So um, so this is when the demonstration is going to happen. And then they ask everyone from the room to uh, go out of the room. So there's about 40 of us, and we're asked to get into this like little corridor that's about sort of two metres by two metres. So we're all sort of like crushed in there. And then they bring out this big massage table and take it into the main room. And then they tell us that we're not allowed to, when we go back into the room, all the chairs are going to have been moved around and that we're not allowed to sit next to anyone that we came along with. We've got to sit next to people that we don't know. So everyone's sort of like goes into the room and then I somehow end up in the front row and <laughs> then this um and the woman so there's okay so there's basically four people there now there's the couple who are going to do the demonstration and there's a woman she's wearing like a kind of kimono and she's obviously nude underneath that and then there's the two people who are running the show which is mainly a woman who does most of the talking and then a guy um, so the couple come out and then she sort of gets up on the bed and the woman is talk, who was running the show is talking and she's saying, um, well, so while this is happening, while these people are doing this demonstration, they want your encouragement. They want you to call out how you're feeling. So everyone's got to call out the emotions that they're having. So that could take the form of my fingers are tingling, my neck is tingling, I'm getting all flushed. This is seriously what she's actually asking us to do. So we've got to call out how we're feeling at the time. And no one in the room is allowed to cross their legs or cross their arms. Everyone has to sit in a really sort of open posture while we're actually seeing this. So the girl gets up onto the bed and I'm kind of sitting like, you know, front center bullseye for, you know, <laughs> everything is happening. And she, uh, so she's wearing nothing and lies back and you can't see her face at this point and her legs are kind of put up in the air on these massive pillows. So it's basically like gynecological sort of central, you know, legs up there. And then the woman who's running the thing says, oh, and we always wear gloves for this practice. And <laughs> You might have been picturing some really nice, like, kind of latex gloves or something like that, but then the guy gets out these big, saggy, deli worker gloves that go up to his elbow. <laughs> He's kind of wearing them like this. And then she's like, and we always use our special lubricant that we sell in our shop downstairs. <laughs> and then he gets out this big tub. And I can only describe this stuff as looking like lemon curd. 
it's like thick and yellow and, and lumpy. And he sort of then, he then applies this to this woman's vulva. And then they start having an anatomical demonstration. And she's lying back doing nothing, right? She's just like lying there while this is being done to her. And they're kind of like spreading her apart. So going, this is the clitoris. This is the vagina. You know, this is the anus. While she's lying there... And then the uh, practice starts, and this is where, so he's kind of, um, so you've got all the lemon curd on her. (laughs) And do you remember how they said, it's just a feather light touch, right? It's just a feather light touch. He's going like this, like kneading her. And I'm sitting there in the front row, I'm not allowed to cross my arms or anything like that, going like, I wasn't really going to do this, but I'm like, no one is ever fucking going anywhere near me doing anything like that. That just looks horrible. It looks so painful. And people are shouting out from all around me. So the lemon curd's going everywhere and it looks just like, like an infection, you know. And <laughs> there's people shouting out, shouting out from all around me. My fingers are tingling. My pussy is tingling. My neck is getting really hot and all this kind of stuff um, coming full all all around me. And then the woman um, who's having this done to her starts making noises. And I've been to sex parties and people make a lot of different noises when they're having sex. But this was kind of like something I recognize from the fact that half my family are in the dairy industry. And this was like... (laughs) This was like a cow giving birth that's really bored at the time or something like that. It was this noise. I'm not even going to do the noise, but it was just... And then everyone's kind of calling out their emotions around me at the same time. And I'm just... I'm feeling really sick because there's the, the lemon curd and all that stuff. It's just horrible. And I'm thinking... It's only 20 minutes. It's only 20 minutes. I can get through this. And then it's going to be lunch and I can just leave and it'll be fine. And then it's two minutes before the end of the... Uh, um, demonstration and the woman who's running the show said, oh, it's only two minutes left, so everyone has to say, everyone who hasn't actually contributed an emotion has to say something. And I'm right in the front row and she says, Soraya? And I'm like, pass. <laughs> but she just styles it out. That obviously happens all the time. And then, so there's like the two minute, the final two minutes is finally over and I'm like, yes, I can get out of here. So then the woman who's running the show says, actually, um, so now you've seen this really, really emotionally confronting thing. No one is allowed to go to lunch by themselves. Everyone has to go with somebody else from the group so that you can process and talk about what's just happened. And I'm like, shit. (laughs) If I can just get out the door, it'll be fine. But as soon as it breaks up, you know, someone next to me is like, oh, sorry, come in our group and that kind of thing. And I'm trying to get to the door and there's lots of people in a small space and people are going, oh, come to lunch with us. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to go. And (laughs) if I only get to the door and then this woman who's running the thing is standing right in the middle of the door. And so she's like, hey, Sarai, you don't have any people to go to lunch with. And I'm like, yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> so this isn't really my thing, and it, I, I can see you guys really enjoy it and stuff like that, but I'm just going to go home. And <laughs> she's, she says, come with me. And she grabs me by both my hands, and she drags me upstairs. And I'm going to point out here at this point that I have Asperger's syndrome, so I don't really like being touched without you know, my consent. I'm, a lot of people don't like that, to be honest. So she's holding my hands, and this actually makes me shake, physically shaking. Uh, so she's dragged me upstairs, and she's like, I can see that you're really, really upset by what you've just seen. You know, you're really, um, you know, this and the, what this actually shows is that this is a really, really important thing that you need in your life. And I'm like... I think what it shows is that I want to leave. (laughs) 
And we have this conversation that kind of goes back and forth where she's telling me that I need to stay for the rest of the day. You know, just at least stay for the rest of the day. This is obviously something that's really important. You know, you wouldn't have been having this extreme reaction to it if it wasn't something that really, really was, you know, incredibly opening for you. I think that she talks about opening all the time. (laughs) So this goes on for about 10 minutes when I'm going, I just want to leave. And she's going, no, stay for the rest of the day. And um, then she finally says, basically, like, I'll cut you a deal if... I'm just going to get you a cup of tea and then um, you can go down. We've got a room downstairs where you can sit just by yourself and you can. someone from the organisation can come sit with you if you want, but they won't talk to you and you can just drink your tea and then you'll be calm and then you, know, you can go and you won't be vulnerable out there on the street because you would have calmed down. And I'm like, I'm thinking about being in a room with nobody around and no freaking lemon curd and all that sort of shit. And I'm thinking, that sounds really, really good, actually. So I agree to this cup of tea and kind of go into this room. And she brings me the tea. And then this other woman from, a different woman from the organization comes in. And this is where I need a volunteer. (laughs) Um, Could you come up and bring your chair up? (laughs) So I've got my cup of tea. And so the woman from the organization, so if you just sit down and face the audience, sort of told that someone would come and they wouldn't talk to me. So she comes over and she brings her chair right over and she's basically got her leg on me like this. And I've got my cup of tea and she's like, breathe with me now, Soraya. She's got her leg over me like this. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with my cup of tea like, oh my fucking God. And then I start to cry. I'm just so stressed out by what's happening here. Um, so I'm crying, and all this stuff is coming out of me, of like my breakup and all this horrible stuff that's happened to me, and the, the waking up in the morning and with the anxiety. And this is feeding into this thing that they've been telling me, which is that I have to stay here and be part of their organisation and fucking do the thing and everything like that. <laughs> but I keep on saying, I keep on saying, I actually want to go. You know, I want to leave, and they keep on saying, you've got to stay. You, 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 this is so important to you. This is really going to be a huge thing in your life. This is going to change your life. And I just keep on saying, I want to leave. Finally, I say, I want to go out and have a walk in in the sun because it's a nice day. And the woman says, okay, I think we can let you do that. But someone from the organization is coming with you. (laughs) And And she's like, oh, they'll take you for lunch and we've got these vouchers and everything like that. So she goes out and gets another walk this woman and they come back and they've got my coat and I'm like can I have my bag and she's like oh no you don't need your bag because she'll buy you lunch and it's gonna everything's gonna be great so we go out and we go to Pratt and it's got no toilet which is just like oh god I really need to pee at this stage but this woman she seems relatively normal we're talking about work and everything like that and I'm thinking oh this is okay this is all right she's gonna let me go it's gonna be fine she has some lunch and I'm just too freaking stressed out to eat anything and then she tells me about that they actually all live together in these houses and they practice this sort of orgasmic meditation with each other but you sort of move into this kind of like what they call oming houses all together and so she's telling me all about the gender stuff and that's kind of like and it turns out that they're these people that basically believe in men are from Mars women are from Venus and all that kind of stuff which is just they've never said any of this before and 
It's all just like, God, this is so far away from anything that I would ever get involved with. It's ridiculous. But she started off really normal, and now she seems to be kind of like she really is trying to draw me into the organization. And I'm like, they've obviously kind of identified me, probably through the fact that I probably gave them too much information about having had shit things happen to me recently. They're sort of targeting me. And I think, how can I convince them that I'm actually not someone that they want in their organization? So they're just kind of talking about all this kind of sex positive stuff. And so I thought, oh, I'll just be really like massively sex negative. So <laughs> I'm just trying to draw on all, what are all the shitty things I've heard people say? And I'm kind of like, you know, ah, those women, they sound like sluts. And, you know, <laughs> she start coming out with that. That sounds like no morals and all this kind of stuff. And like, I just see this change go on in her. And I think, oh, God she's going to let me go. And she starts actually talking about me leaving instead of talking about me being part of the organisation. I'm thinking, this is going to be great. Um, I'm going I'm to get to go. But as we're walking down the street, I kind of realise I've got to get back into that building and I've got to get my bag and then get out without meeting, running into any of the other three women or so who wanted me to stay. But I do actually manage to get in there and I managed to get my bag and I managed to leave. That wasn't the last thing I had to do with the organization because they phoned me up pretty much every day afterwards for the weeks. And I think I last actually heard from them about sort of three months ago and this initial sort of incident happened about two years ago. And I just keep on saying to them, just fucking stop calling me, delete my phone number and that kind of thing. But they just keep on calling me constantly. This all kind of made me reflect upon um, what made me, what drew me into this, why I would sort of get involved in something like that in the first place. And I was thinking about how I felt so much like I kind of needed change in my life and I needed to be someone completely different. But what actually happened there was that they said to me, we've got this thing that will change your life. We've got this amazing thing and it'll make you a totally different person. And I actually said, I don't want it. Thanks. Soraya, everybody. Okay, so our next performer, she is doing uh, a show called Phone Whore at the Wandsworth Fringe from the 8th to the 16th of May. And she's also going to be doing that in Edinburgh. And, she's, and also in Edinburgh, she'll be doing her Smut Slam Cabaret. Put your hands together, everybody, for Cameron Moore! So, Phone Horror, the title of my show, it's, it's just, it's not about telemarketing, all right? A lot of people think that it must be something kind of sly and funny. It's, it was actually a phrase drawn from the training manual that my boss gave me uh, when I first started doing phone sex work. Um, I've been doing phone sex for six years now. My six-year anniversary was April 22nd, and then I <laughs> left here for, for the UK for four and a half months, so it's all good. I don't have to talk to wankers for four and a half months, which is great. <laughs> um, it's uh, not something like when I first started doing it, I had a lot of shame around it, because um, it's not something that you would... It's not like a normal career choice that's presented, right? It's not something you would run across at the high school career fair. Oh, look, phone sex, that looks good. Um, no, um, there's a lot of stigma attached to it like many sex work uh, options. Um, I started doing phone sex in April of 2009 when uh, the like a major recession hit around the world. I was laid off from my job um, doing marketing for a textbook publishing company. So I started doing phone sex work because I was desperate. Um, I kept doing it because I turned out to be really good at it. Um, 
It, yeah, no, it's like this amazing convergence of, of a skill sets that are not normally rewarded out in the real world, right? A motor mouth and a gutter mind, boom, right there. <laughs> right there. So it, it turned out to be actually a very good career choice for me. Um, it, the pay is shit. Uh, the hours are shit. Um, they do give me some flexibility to do the playwriting and performing and rehearsing that I want to do. But at any moment, I could get a phone call. Like I could be baking cookies. I could be in the middle of fucking. And if the phone rings, bam, I got to drop it and be present for somebody else's sexual fantasy, which probably doesn't align with mine at all. Um, and I'm pretty broad-minded, but realistically, like fantasies don't work like that. You have a very specific thing that you like to think about, and, and I just happen to be open enough to conceptualize other people's fantasies, but I don't want that. Um, which brings me to the, the point of what I wanted to talk tonight about. A lot of people, a lot of people ask me questions, obviously, uh, after my shows, um, or just randomly on Facebook, because that happens sometimes, they'll ask me questions, which is understandable. Phone sex isn't really talked about very much. Uh, most people think it must have died out with the internet, um, which is not true. It's still very alive and well. Um, and, and one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, do you ever get emotionally involved? Do you ever get emotionally involved? And there are two things that they might be asking with that particular question. They might be asking, do you actually jerk off while you're on the phone? Which I'm like, no, fuck, no, no. Um, I don't, I don't. Uh, I'm just answering that in case you're wondering. I don't jerk off while I'm talking to clients. It's um, uh, like, like anything, um, like anything involving words, like the, uh, phone sex, you have to have one person at least in charge steering that ship safely to the post-orgasmic shore. Someone has to be in control, and if I'm actually jerking off and enjoying myself, I can't control that ship. Uh, and, and that's, they may like to think that I'm doing it for my pleasure, they might like to think that I'm having orgasms. Um, the callers, some of them really do like to think that I'm having orgasms, but frankly, if they're asking me to have nine orgasms in seven minutes, they don't really care if I'm having an orgasm or not. They just want to think that they're giving me that many orgasms. Um, so there's that question, like, am I, am I jerking off? Am I getting involved in that way? The other angle to that question is, um, am I getting attached? Am I falling in love? I think that's in some of the, the movie representations of phone sex, that there's that danger that you might want to meet your clients, that you might want, you might want to go and, and find them out in the real world. And um, the answer to that is also, no, God, no, why, no? I don't want that at all. Um, there are, of course, clients that I, that I uh, like for some of the same reasons that I'm a very popular phone sex operator myself. They have good voices. They are articulate. They uh, they are open and sharing about and honest about their their thing. So I hear that and I respond to those voices, and that's natural. But I never want to get involved because that would involve going off the grid, and that would involve me losing my job. And the few times that I've had pressure from clients to meet up with them somehow, to go off and meet them somehow, to 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 to, to webcam with them, I'm always like, if you truly love me, you wouldn't want me to lose my job, would you? And they'd never really answer that outright. They don't care as long as I take care of their boner. Um, so I don't get emotionally involved in that way. There is no client who is worth me losing my job for. Um, there is no client. Um, but uh, it's a service job. It's, a, it's, a, it's work. It's a service 
profession. And uh, how many people here have worked in restaurants, have done like restaurant service, bar service? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so that is also a service job. And, and you know when you're working in restaurants, like I've worked in restaurants, and you, and you, and you get regulars, right? You get regulars who, who you're happy to see come into your section, right? You know that they're going to be nice, and they're going to be pleasant, and, and they're, gonna, they're not going to make difficulties for you. And it, like in the States, they tip, you know, so here that's not so much a thing, but, but like, you know, in the States, they tip well, like a good regular is going to lay down that money and tip well. Um, and those are awesome regulars. And then you have shit regulars who always pick your station, but are shitheads. And so they, they make trouble for you all the time. They're fussy. They're, they're, they're assholes in general. And, and they always order gross things that you don't even want to touch when you bring it out to the table. So there are those regulars, right? Um, so those regulars, fuck them. I do well with them, I do well with them, I'm a professional. <laughs> but there are regulars who I like. There are definitely regulars who I like. Um, I wanna tell you tonight about one regular, his name is Larry. Um, and I first met Larry, I say met, I, met is always gonna be in quotes, all right? I didn't meet him, but like I first got introduced to Larry. Uh, he, he ordered a 10 minute package of time um, my company, you can order packages of time, seven minutes, 10 minutes, 12, 15. He ordered 10 minutes of time, and then he, uh, he wanted me to, to like spew out like all the filth that I could throw at him, right? Like, call me whatever, you dirty, cock-sucking, panty-sniffing little pervert. You want to fucking get me in your ass? You want me to fucking ram you? Yeah, this is whole, all of it, all of it. Didn't matter. He was like completely non-denominational about his tastes. He didn't care as long as it involved dirty words um, and really, really dirty words. And so I was just laying into him for all I could for a minute, and then suddenly, he starts talking about gardening and he starts talking about how well the rhododendrons were doing this year and I'm going along I'm like okay this is part of the deal right with phone sex professional phone sex is is a lot of guys they, they tend to jump tracks I, I think it's partly like the ADD brought on by the internet um, you can have 20 screens open and they can be clicking through and getting ideas from all of them um, so I've learned to be able to keep up. Like, if they start talking about roses, I will downshift, and I will start talking about roses. I know a little bit about gardening. It's okay. So, um, so he's, talking about his, he's talking about his roses and his rhododendrons. This is Alabama, so the, cli the climate is really good for it. And uh, about two minutes before the end of the call, I'm keeping an eye on the time, right? He says... Uh, I say, well, Larry, I have to let you know we have about two minutes left. Did you wanna did you wanna come today? And he said, Well, no, you got to, otherwise they're just gonna keep talking forever. They're not keeping track of time, right? Do you wanna come today? And he said, Oh, sweetheart, I came eight minutes ago. <laughs> this is great, this is just great. We're just talking, right? And so this was what he wanted to do. This was his deal. So I had him, I had been talking to him, I ended up talking to him like, oh, I don't know, like every month, every three weeks maybe for a few years. And every time it was the same thing. 10 minutes he'd order, a minute, and he always requested me. Like requesting is awesome because I get an extra buck from that, right? So a minute of filth and nine minutes of gardening. And <laughs> you have to admire that kind of dedication to a hobby. Um, I'm talking about the gardening, of course. Uh, 
so he would, you know, he would talk, we would talk about the state of his garden and he told me about his wife, how she just didn't want to do sex anymore. And he was an old man. He was an old man. He was, I think he said he was like 67, 68. She just didn't want to do it anymore. He just had needs and urges. And, and I asked if she knew about him calling and, and he said, yeah, she's fine with it. You know, it's just, she doesn't want me, doesn't want me bothering her anymore. Um, so, but he's an old man, he had medical problems. He would talk to me about his medical problems. He said he goes to see a, a cute little massage therapist down there. And she was so cute and everything, but she never did anything with him, but you know, she was cute. Um, so we'd talk about this and he would talk about whatever flowers were happening, it was flowers. It wasn't like vegetables, it was flowers. And, and he would um, talk about how, some, occasionally he'd veer into dirty territory again, how he'd love to see me weeding naked, you know, pulling weeds naked, getting down there in the mud, getting all dirty. And then he'd just get right back to the rhododendrons, right? <laughs> I don't even know what a rhododendron looks like. Someone can tell me later. Um, or, or he would talk about, one time he, would talk, he talked about a lot about uh, crystal burgers. Anybody know uh, crystal burgers? You don't know crystal burgers. It's a, it's a southern thing, and it's a big deal in Alabama, and he wanted to take me on a date to crystal burgers. And he tried to explain to me with all the passion of a foodie about why crystal burgers were the best damn burgers in the South. Right? It's all about the chopped onions, apparently. Chopped onions on the, on the, the burgers. They're just sliders. You know, they're little tiny burgers. So he, 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 that for him was an idea of a great date with me. A bunch of nude weeding in the mud, and then we're going out for crystal burgers afterwards. Which, great, you know, salt of the earth. I love it. Um, so this was the way things went along for some time. He knew my birthday. I knew his birthday. He would always call on his birthday. And uh, I remember looking up about a year and a half ago and going, shit, I haven't heard from Larry in a while. And that's something that I always knew about clients. Because when we don't hear from them, it's not like we can follow up. Right? It's not like we could call them up afterwards and say, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> you know, how you been? You need any help with your Woody? That's all right. You know, like we can't do that calling. We can't follow up. It's not that kind of business. If they don't call, we lose them. And we don't know why. Could be their wife finds out. Could be they switch to another company. Could be they die. And Larry was an old man. And he was very sick, very sick. And I haven't heard from him. I looked before I left. I haven't heard from him in three years. He is probably dead. And there is no way that I will ever know what happened to him. So I do get emotionally involved. Uh, I can't afford to think about it too much, but I do get emotionally involved. And uh, just because I take money for it doesn't mean it hurts any less. Cameron Moore, everybody. Okay, so uh, before I welcome our last performer of the evening in uh, uh, up onto the stage, what I should also say is, uh, I, I forgot to even mention this, uh, how I end the nights is by uh, getting the audience to have a cathartic sing-along, so just like get out all of the emotions. Um, so uh, 
after this next act, I'm going to be attempting to lead us in a sing-along to uh, Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Pepper. Uh, so, <laughs> wow, people already excited for it. I, 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 am, I am dreading it in many ways. But before that, we have our last performer. Uh, she is a comedian and a writer and a podcaster. You should definitely check out her podcast on her, on her Gate Crash Network. Uh, her podcast, do, I, do Who I Say, Not Who I Do, is one of the best names in podcasting. Um, and she also does Gods of Comedy with Beck Hill. Uh, and she also do, do, did my favorite, one of my favorite storytelling shows of last year's Edinburgh Fringe. Cameron uh, was another of my favorites, actually. So you're getting two of my favourite storytellers here on the stage. Uh, Bridie Lee Kennedy repeats on you was that show, and I believe she's going to be doing it in a different kind of form in the future. So you should definitely look out for that. And that's giving away her name. So, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, bring let let's welcome Bridie Lee Kennedy to the stage. Hi. Uh- my story um, is at least partly about teenage sex, so I can assure you there is no clitoral stimulation involved. Um, <clears throat> so this is actually a story in three parts, and each of those parts is called Justin. I was 14. He was an angel. What well, he, uh, he looked like an angel. Actually, he looked like Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, played by a young, gorgeous David Boreanaz, as brooding as he was, charismatic, as cheekbony as he was, undead. And Justin looked just like him. I saw him across the room at a party, and as, he t- as Nickelback's How You Remind Me began to spill from the speakers, he turned his dark eyes towards me. And he flicked the ash from his cigarette onto the carpet. Because he didn't give a fuck. (laughs) He drank whiskey on the rocks. I drank vodka, neat, by which I mean from a water bottle. I stumbled towards him, cultish, in both the clumsy baby horse sense and the Charles Manson sense. I sat down next to him on the expensive leather sofa of our wealthy friend's uninterested stepmother. Uninterested stepmothers were very much in vogue with my friends. They had unlocked medicine cabinets and other places to be. I introduced myself, and he told me that he played the guitar. I mean, right up top, that's what he told me. Before his name, which I eventually learned from a mutual friend who was trying to get a Twister game going in the kitchen. Before his number, which he scrawled onto a train ticket for me before he left, ripping the pen lid off with his teeth and spitting it on the carpet next to the ash because the amount of fucks he didn't give was breathtaking. (laughs) Before anything else. I play guitar so much better than these douches. He hated Nickelback. I'd never met anyone who hated Nickelback before. This was love. It was a while ago. (laughs) This was love. One week later, I was in his bed. Actually, not his bed, the bed of his overprivileged sister in the flat she hardly used. She'd make a wonderful, uninterested stepmother someday. He was high, I had heat stroke, Pink Floyd played on vinyl, Uh, wish you were here that is, he thought the wall was too commercial. (laughs) As he lay down beside me, he took my face in his hands and said, you look good, Bella. 
I wouldn't say my virginity was lost so much as discarded. Uh, it had been a nuisance to me as long as I'd been aware of its existence, like a health defect that he'd finally cured. Afterwards, on the bus, we spoke little and touched not at all. He got off to meet his friends at the cinema, waving his hand in one final tiny salute. I stayed seated, watching as the lights of Sydney bounced off the window and melted to the ground. I didn't feel different. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel excited. I felt hungry, mostly, and my sunburn stung. I didn't see Justin again for five years. When... I was 19, and he was an angel. Well, he looked like an angel. Actually, he looked like Angel in the Buffy spin-off series, Angel, played by a slightly older, still devastating David Boreanaz, as brooding as he was, charismatic as Cheek Bonesia was, undead. And Justin looked just like him. I was sitting in an anthropology of performance class, studiously avoiding realising what a pointless subject that was. I had started to study humanities because I liked history and writing and being mocked by my relatives, and also because I thought it'd be a really good way of meeting my kind of people. And I was right about that. Sitting beside me in that lecture was my boyfriend of six months, a soft-spoken academic type with a successful beard and non-specific environmental tendencies. Adam was taking notes for the both of us because my feminism stretches only as far as my laziness and so I was free to let my eyes wander the room. They tripped over a sleeping girl with dead daisies in her hair, a terrified looking gay friend who had clearly just started coming down from the night before and my vegan friend who carried Alby plays with her everywhere and had recently started to misuse the word libertarian. My people. And then they settled on him. Justin. He wore a waistcoat with his jeans and he had no books in front of him because he didn't give a fuck. <laughs> he was already looking back at me steadily as though he'd been waiting all day for me to spot him. But then as soon as I did, he smirked, then yawned and looked away, a hat trick of dismissiveness that can only be pulled off by the truly sexy. <laughs> I waited until class ended, told Adam I'd meet him at home and then raced to the entrance of the lecture theatre. Justin finally emerged after everyone else had gone. He gave me an, I've been expecting you, eyebrow raise and said, coffee? Yeah, we could drink coffee now because we were grown-ups and we had all the grown-up addictions. Coffee. In those two syllables were five words of separate but parallel development. Coffee, graduation, adults, marriage, babies. As I mentally free associated, I nodded and followed him to the university cafe. He drank a macchiato, strong. I drank a latte, frothy. <laughs> By which I mean with soy milk. As Amy Winehouse's You Know I'm No Good began to spill from the speakers, I asked him why I hadn't seen him in my one year at university, but I didn't dare to ask him about the four preceding years. He told me he'd only just enrolled because he thought university was something he should try out. His Education was something he should try out. I mean, I'd felt the same way about Lost, and my Thursday nights were the worse off for it. His nonchalance was like liquid sun melting down any icy reserves of cool I managed to build up. It poured from his eyes 
as I tried to downplay my enthusiasm for my boyfriend and my degree and my life. I looked into my coffee, wished I'd ordered it black. After an hour, he stood up, stretched and said he had to get to an audition. He was an actor now, he explained. I'd asked him what had happened to music and he said he still played, but the scene... I waited for him to finish that sentence and he never did. He just bent down and picked up his leather backpack. He kissed me on both cheeks, then held my face in his hands and said, You look the same, Bella. So do you, Justin. He strode out of the cafe and I licked the soy foam from the inside of my cup and then turned my phone over so I wouldn't have to see the text from Adam that had just arrived. I didn't see Justin again for five years. When I was 24. And he was an angel. Well, he looked like an angel. Actually, he didn't. He looked like an FBI special agent, specifically FBI special agent Seely Booth from the police procedural Bones, played by an older, kind of worn David Boreanaz, like if you took Angel out on a 10-year bender, then dropped him off at a crime scene and asked him to quip. (laughs) And Justin looked just like him. I saw him across a crowded beer garden on a sunny afternoon, and as Gauthier's somebody that I used to know began to spill from the speakers, it was so overplayed by this point that even I couldn't find significance in that, he turned his dark eyes towards me and smiled, jumped up, ran over to my table and threw his arms around me. Oh my God, Bridie, this is a beautiful surprise. A beautiful surprise. I was a beautiful surprise to this familiar stranger and I hugged him back hard. He sat down and we caught up. He drank a cider, pear. I drank a cider, girly, by which I mean recorder lig. He told me he was a writer now and was actually doing his masters in literature. I told him I was a comedian and he said that made sense because I'd always made him laugh, which I didn't remember. After a couple of hours, the sun was starting to go down and he told me that he lived nearby. I was sweaty and moderate drunk and I just texted my best friend from the bathroom saying, oh my God, I am having a drink with the guy I lost my virginity to 10 years ago, almost to the day. And she'd responded, Bridie, your life is not a Richard Curtis movie. Get out. (laughs) So I'd turn my phone off because she clearly wasn't thinking straight. I told him that I'd love to see his place. And so we left, walked the melting Sydney streets together close enough that the tips of the hairs on my left arm brushed the tips of the hairs on his right. We talked about music and cliff faces and why everyone was eating frozen yogurt now when ice cream already exists and this was love. We sat down in his backyard and he lit a cigarette, his first of the day. I watched him ash carefully into the mangled clay ashtray that his six-year-old niece had made him. She was perfect, apparently, and his sister was just in love. She traded in the underused flat for a nice house in the country with her husband and her little girl, and he said she'd never been happier. He chatted away about his niece's swimming lessons and her little braids, and I let his words run together as I watched the smoke drift from his lips. Bridie... 
I am so sorry. Well, that penetrated. I don't know if this is a good time to bring this up or, or when a good time really would be, but look, I know it's ancient history. It's just that night when we were kids, I, I should have called. It's just, I was embarrassed and, and you were so nice. And I, look, I just want to say I'm sorry. I wish I'd said it earlier. And remember that time I ran into you at uni? Well, I was going to say it then, but you seemed so happy. You had your degree and your boyfriend, your whole life together. Like what would an apology from me even mean? And I asked if I could kiss him. And he asked if I remembered how. And I did. And in that kiss was 10 years of separate but parallel development. It tasted like a memory and it tasted like hope. It felt like my teenage years and it felt like right now. Every mistake I'd made in the last five years, the last 10, the last 24 didn't matter because they brought me back here again and again and again. And now for the last time, I was home. My 14-year-old self had seen where I belonged and she'd planted a flag there, base camp. And I'd finally found it again. I could light a tiny fire, build a little house, Maybe learn to knit. <laughs> we went to bed. And afterwards, I lay with my head on his chest for half an hour, listening to his raspy breath. He really should quit smoking, I thought, but we could talk about that in the morning. He turned towards me, took my face in his hand and said, you look perfect, Bella. I'm so glad we finally did this. Me too. Well, technically, did this again. <laughs> he looked confused. No, I mean, I'm glad we finally did... this. It was my turn to be confused. Yeah, I, I know, I mean, did this again. You're, you're glad we did this again. He looked even more confused and started to shift away from me. Uh, no, um... Uh, I don't want to be crude, um, but I mean, I'm glad we finally had sex. I shifted away too. Our hips disconnected and the sheet fell away. Uh, not to be a stickler, Justin, but um, we've already had sex. N no, Bridie, we, we haven't. <laughs> yes, we have. Remember, I, I was 14. I, I came over. Bridie, we... We didn't have sex that night. <laughs> Justin, I think I'd remember. I lost my virginity to you 10 years ago, almost to the day. N no, Braddy, you didn't. Y you came over that night and we... We tried... <clears throat> <laughs> there was some... Um, but I didn't. We... I couldn't get it in. I grabbed the pillow to shield myself. Y yes, you, you could. You, you did. Nobody, I, I didn't.
but what does it matter? We've done it now. And, and it was great. You know, I feel kind of relieved. I always felt so embarrassed about that night because, you know, you try to do, I sank back into the pillow and tried to tune him out. I'd been telling this story for 10 years and it wasn't even true. That means the guy I lost my virginity to was the next one. What the fuck was his name? I want to say Tom. God, he was insignificant. This guy, the one beside me, or at least his past selves, which I had apparently invented, was the significant one. The one that got away. Not the one who couldn't get it in. <laughs> Bridie, I, I know this is quick, but I really feel like we might have something here, you know? Hey, in another sense, this has been 10 years coming, right? No, it was 10 years coming with some other guy, some beautiful, diffident, undead guy who didn't give a fuck. This was all wrong. This was broken. But I smiled and said, yeah, you might be right. Let's go to sleep, hey? I waited until he was snoring and I slid out of bed. I gathered up my clothes, dressed as quickly as I could, and then, finding his front door deadlocked, I opened his bedroom window, slid through it, and sprinted into the night. <laughs> as I waited to hail a cab, one thought emerged and started to bang itself against the front of my head. <sighs> well, I have got to leave Sydney. <laughs> and I did. One month later, I bought a one-way ticket and I flew to London. And I haven't seen Justin since. Thank you. Bridie Lee Kennedy, everybody. Okay, so Liz, are you gonna, gonna come down and try and do the uh, thing that will be as... Be, be as ridiculous as the, the, the thing normally is anyway. So uh, this is Liz. She helps with Sun Up Tragedy. She's going to get the laptop, which is going to have the words for Let's Talk About Sex, which we will present behind me because obviously my experience of sing-alongs, and I've done a few of them now because we've been doing this for a while, and uh, when you don't give people the words, they don't sing along, and then it's just me singing. However... Uh, none, of the, none of the plugs there worked tonight, so we are having to be a little bit... Uh, yeah, the PowerPoint's on the, on the desktop. <laughs> it's called Let's Talk About Sex. It's not porn. Uh, right. So who knows this song? Who knows this song? Yeah. Right, okay, good. That wasn't that many people. We're going to have to really... We're going to have to really do it tonight. I mean, you know, we can try it without the words... I might want to look at the screen. <laughs> As I say, the, the purpose of this is not to be good. <laughs> the purpose of this is to kind of be ridiculous. And so I guess that's what we're going to be. Uh, do you want to cue up the music, Harv? Spinderella cut it up one Bit more loud, I think. Yeah, I mean, this bit, you know, this is the intro. It's going to be quite hard to sing along with this bit. So, so I'm not even going to try. Yeah, moving's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Sex, baby, let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. 
This is one of the. I, I would actually. This isn't even the weirdest sing along I've ever run here. I mean, last time I did all of Let It Go, and I knew all the words to that one. So I think, Harv, after this next chorus, we'll fade it down, right? Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about Okay, thank you everybody for enduring that one. Um, so yeah, have you got the, the outro tracks queued up? I just realized I hadn't asked you about that earlier on. Ah, wow, that's really good. We're like a smoothly oiled machine. So thank you very much for coming to Stand Up Tragedy tonight. Our next Stand Up Tragedy will be here in this room on the 6th of June. That will be Tragic Summer. And that will be featuring a guest host section from Alice Bell, who's in the audience tonight. She's going to be doing the tragedy of climate change. And I tell you what, this is the second part of that. The first one was bleak as fuck. So, yes, that's on the 6th of June. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got Tragic Edinburgh, where we'll be at, there at 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth, apart from Tuesdays. We're going to have guest hosts and collaborations and special editions with Samantha Mann, Casual Violence, Other Voices, Keith Jarrett and more. So check out what we're doing in Edinburgh. Uh, I'm also, as I said earlier on, producing my solo show and all of that stuff. And we're also producing the solo show for Radcliffe Royds, which is going to be an interesting one to look out for too. Friend us on Facebook, check out the events for more details. If you want to stay and drink, we've got lots of tragic tunes. We can even push back the tables and dance if you want to. It is really up to you. We are a consensual organisation. So thank you very much for coming. I have a backing track because I don't know how to end things. So you could clap and then it would end me. This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reaction. Try